everyone, Ian here. On behalf of Jason and me and the entire Flight Radar 24 crew, I want to thank you all for listening to the podcast this year and every year. In 2022, we covered the recovery of air travel, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and its sprawling effects on commercial aviation, the long summer of suck as airlines and airports couldn't handle the crush of returning passengers, the future of aviation as Airbus, Boeing, and others look for a path forward to the next generation of aircraft, and we talked with many exciting and interesting people hard at work in the industry. From journalists covering the business of aviation to those hidden behind the scenes making sure airlines run smoothly. To close out the year, we've chosen a few conversations to share again as we get ready for what's to come in 2023. First, we have a pair of conversations from my visit to Bordeaux, France to fly in the Air Zero G A310 in simulated microgravity. I spoke with Jean Francois Clevois, the former astronaut and chairman of Nova Space, about microgravity research and how they almost ended up using an A380 as their laboratory. And then we hear from Bertrand Rameau, who's a pilot on the Air Zero G A310, about what it's like to actually fly a Zero G parabola. I spoke with Nova Space Chairman and former astronaut Jean-Francois Clairvois about the mechanics of parabolic flights, and he had a lot to say about that. But in the course of our conversation, I also learned that we came quite close to seeing a much different aircraft operating these flights. We're sitting in Bordeaux. The A310's behind you. There happens to be a Beluga sitting next to the A310. I know it's not here for that, but have you ever given any thought to like what the perfect aircraft for zero G would be? Like if you were starting this all over again and you had your choice of any aircraft. In fact, since we didn't get for a long time the answer from the German Air Force about the A310, Conrad Adenauer, which transported the Angela Merkel, this one. Right. Uh, we were pessimistic. And Airbus proposed to us to pay for the studies and the test flight to verify that the Airbus 380 could do it. And it, <laughs> and it was successful. Really? And we were supposed to announce at the Paris Air Show 2013, the partnership between Novespace and Airbus to continue zero-G flight for ESA, DLR, French Space Agency, with their own Airbus 380, the number, I think the number two or the number three. Because they said, we have a program that justify, that, that we, have a, we have a need for this aircraft, but that's not big enough to justify to maintain it in flight conditions. Right. It was to, to arrange the top floor into a very luxurious apartment for Emiratis and, uh, you know. <laughs> but we need to find another use to, to pay for the maintenance, uh, to contribute to the maintenance. So they told us, we will uh, organize a campaign for you, but you will have to combine two campaigns in one. It is so huge that the mid floor, I mean the, the main floor, you know, uh, you have the cargo and the two floor for passengers. The, the middle one is so huge, you could feel like three or four times what we have in this one. Uh, so they say in order to minimize, so 
it would have been a constraint for us because we would have been able, we would have been obliged to combine, to, to convince Isa, Diela to find dates where uh, they can fly together. Yeah. It's, it's feasible. Yeah. What, a, what was a bit frustrated for us is in that case, we would have not been our own operator because we would have not managed the training of the pilots, etc. And a, a month or two before the Paris Air Show, the one head of Airbus told our partner, uh, we consider that you, oh yeah, one other condition is, we will price Noves Pass just the same amount you would price if you had your own Airbus, like the 300 or the 310. And then somebody at Airbus said, uh, it's, uh, it's too kind for Novespas because it costs far, far more, especially for engines, etc. Yeah. So we, he said, let's, within Airbus management, they decided to review the price, the pricing offered to Novespas to see if they could maybe price a bit more than what they had promised at the beginning. Uh. And in between, we received the answer from the German Air Force, okay. <laughs> because we had the head of CNES and the Minister of Defense talk to each other to find if it was possible because DLR is a user, so DLR has an interest to, f to favor this uh, transfer. And in the meantime, we got uh, uh, a favorable answer from the German Air Force who said, we are ready to not put in auction that Airbus 310 which was the original plan, and we will sell you at the market price. So give us a price. We will uh, we will see if it's uh, reasonable, and we we give a price. They say okay, and uh, so we have it. So what is nice is this is our own. We operate and manage ourselves like a airline company. Uh, we are our own operator of uh, of the plane. Uh, so it's more flexible because we don't have to make agencies, uh, you know, agree together on the planning for when to fly, etc. So to answer your question again, in short, <laughs> we have had the opportunity to look at uh, big aircraft, which would be actually interesting only for shooting movies where they need uh, big mock-ups. Mm. But when you fly people in uh, zero G, it's dangerous to have a huge volume. Because the Eushin 76, which has a smaller floor surface than this one, has a high ceiling, more than four meters high. You need to assign one safety attendant per passenger, wow. ready to grab the foot. Because if you are at four meters when you will do the pullout, Ooh, you will see during yeah. the pullout, you are maximum one or one and a half meter above floor. So you, so our plane is is good. I mean it's. Uh, Maybe we have only 220 meter ceiling height. So maybe 250 would have been ideal. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's fine. It's, it's okay, it's manageable. Uh, but Beluga, uh, you know, we have looked at how to get a longer time, Concorde. Concorde would have given us one minute. If, one you, minute. Use, if you use, uh, you know, post-combustion, yeah. high, high uh, angle of uh, pitch, at each junction, you can get one minute of zero G. But of course, Concorde is too expensive. <laughs> uh, you know, at the end of life, there were some Concorde still able to fly. Uh, 
Right. So we look at the other 380, but the uh, beta would be definitely too big too. So safety-wise, not manageable. Could you explain the the parabolic nature? Why can't okay. Why can't you just fly and then dive? Why okay. Why why oh, yeah. the why the parabola? Okay. So the principle of parabolic flight is to make the aircraft to insert the aircraft into an an Earth orbit. We demonstrate in physics that when you are outside a uniform sphere. The gravity is the same, whatever the size of the sphere. Mm -hmm. So if you are outside Earth, the gravity field is the same as if all Earth was there. Mm -hmm. So imagine a virtual ellipse orbit like, like this. This is, this is the arc of an actual Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. If there were no atmosphere, you would be in weightlessness here, like when you are on an orbit around the Earth. Mm -hmm. So the principle of public flight is to throw the aircraft in the air and make it follow this arc of an orbit at its apogee, where velocities and attitudes are within the f qualified flight envelope of the plane, given by the constructor, Airbus. In order to maximize the time of weightlessness, we give the time of ascent and descent. When I throw this pen up, the time of weightlessness is the whole time. Because in physics, free fall doesn't necessarily start with a fall towards the floor. When you throw something in the air, it is called free fall in physics. Weightlessness is a state you are in when you are subject to gravity only. It's not the absence of gravity, it's when the only remaining force applied to an object is gravity and nothing else. When there is no surface, surface contact force. Mm -hmm. In our daily life, we are submitted to gravity, which is a volume force. It applies from a distance to any grain of matter of your body, inside, outside. All the other forces we face in our daily life are contact forces, surface, surface forces. So, an airplane, alors, why going up first is to double the time of weightlessness. I also spoke with Bertrand Rameau, one of Nova Space's eight pilots. We talked about what it takes to become a zero-g pilot and what it's actually like to fly all of those parabolas. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, really pleasure to, yeah. to sit and talk with you. And, and um, I'd start with a little housekeeping. Tell us uh, your name and, and what you what you do here at Nova Space. Yep, I'm uh, Bertrand Ramo. I'm one of the uh, zero-g pilots here at Nova Space in seven years. Uh, we operate this uh, Airbus A310. Uh, totally dedicated to this very special mission. And how did you become a zero-g pilot for Nova Space? This is a, a very, I mean, there, there, there aren't many of you. So yeah, uh, how did so, you get here? 
Uh, we are seven right now, no, eight, uh, exactly eight. Uh, we introduce a, a brand new one uh, this summer. Um, basically, I joined the team when uh, Novace Page um, purchased this A310 after the 300 B2, B4. And uh, at this time, Novespace has decided to operate uh, this aircraft by, by itself. Um, before that, it was operated by the French um, test center uh, from the Air Force. And uh, so when uh, Novespace has decided to operate this aircraft by itself, uh, they um, call us uh, some specialists of the 310. So uh, I flew the 310 for more than 10 years in the French Air Force. I was instructor, examiner, etc. So uh, that's why uh, I was called at the very, very beginning of this story. Um, basically, the eight pilot, we are half pilot, are test pilot from uh, the industry, Airbus, HER, and uh, the French test center. Uh, and the other part, uh, we are standard civilian uh, airline pilot with a background of uh, with a different background uh, usually military background uh, so we know uh, we know a little bit more than uh, than usual how to uh, to make some aerobatics or something <laughs> like that so uh, we have a, a past uh, in the military and then uh, an experience in the in the in the airline or airline operation at least and uh, this mix creates uh, the condition for Novespace to operate safely this aircraft uh, with uh, the both competencies, totally different competencies on one part the flight test uh, competencies and on another part um, how to operate an aircraft in a regulated environment. So how, how do you train you mentioned that there are distinct yeah. differences between being a regular commercial pilot on, on the A310 or any yeah. other aircraft yeah. and this. What, how, what's that training like? Uh, the training is uh, very, very specific for this, uh, for this operation. So we begin on the simulator just to learn not to fly the parabola, but to learn the music, so how we, we operate. We, because as probably you, you noticed this morning, uh, we divide the axes and we operate this aircraft very, in a very specific manner. So we need to to have a specific music uh, tempo of the parabola. So we learn this, uh, this tempo in the simulator. And in addition, we learn as well the uh, emergency situation. So the recovery of what, we, what can happen during this parabola. So we, we, we try to, we are trained on, uh, on the simulator uh, about this uh, special situation. Then we went to uh, an aerobatic light aircraft just just to uh, perform a couple of parabolas and and to to be um, more uh, not efficient but the more uh, yeah to put your head down and uh, just for the to learn how his 50 degrees nose up how his 50 degrees nose down how the speed increase fast etc etc just for familiarization right and then we come here we have four flights dedicated flight without any passengers just us we go to the uh, over the sea and uh, and let's go. So you jump in the in a, a new world, uh, and, and that's it. So we perform more or less 40, 50 parabolas uh, just for training, and then uh, you join some uh, scientific campaign or, uh, or uh, public flights, and uh, you perform your first parabola with passengers on board, and uh, and you learn day after day, flight after flight. You need a uh, hundred thousand of parabolas to be uh, 
to be a, a regular parabolic pilot. It's uh, you, it's matter of uh, experience. Most of the, the best quality you have, you need experience for sure. So d describe for us what's happening on the flight deck as you go into the parabola and, and walk us through the whole parabola. Ah, the, so from the flight deck, first of all, we hide the windows to avoid some sun um, disturbance during the, the maneuver. When we climb or when we dive, uh, the sun moves and uh, we can have reflex uh, and uh, to avoid this condition, we put some some curtains on the lateral windows of the cockpit. So we are, it's, it's very dark inside the cockpit and we keep only the two front uh, windshield open and that's it. And then we work at three pilots at the same time. So that means we, we divide the axis. So we have the pitch axis. So it will be fly by the one in charge of the, of the accuracy of the parabola. So only push and pull. Focus on that, focus on the accelerometer to provide the best zero uh, possible. Uh, and that is only task. So to fly the pitch, to fly zero G. On the second part of the aircraft, you have the pilot who is responsible for the, for the lateral axis, for the roll. So we put two uh, small, um, uh, small, uh, lines, wires on, on, the, on, the, on the yoke just to avoid uh, some disturbance on the pitch. And we fly the, we fly the aircraft like this. We keep the roll more or less at zero during all the maneuver. This pilot is responsible as well of the music, uh, of the tempo of the parabola. And the third one is in the middle, sit down on the, on the jump seat and is responsible for the thrust, thrust of the engine to set up the full thrust for, to, for the entry in the parabola and to uh, set the good thrust during the parabola to obtain the best uh, zero G on all axes uh, during, the, during the maneuver. And so let's go to inside this parabola. Uh, the G pilot, the pitch pilot will pull 1.8 G during 20 seconds to uh, reach 50 degrees nose up. Then at the call out injection, we will push on the on the yoke and to reach a zero g that's the most difficult part of the parabola it's to pass from 1.8 g to zero and not uh, 0 0.1 but 0 0.0001 so uh, that's our target and during the 22 seconds of the parabola we keep this uh, this uh, accuracy of the zero g and then when we reach 50 degrees north down uh, you have to become again an aircraft and uh, you pull out 1.5 at the beginning and then 1.8 and to recover the situation and to come back at the departure point. And let's do that 31 times. Very good. Is um, when, you're, when you're performing the maneuvers in the simulator for the first time, obviously you're not feeling that gravity um, I know the simulator is uh, basically uh, so then no when, when you get to the when you get to the G how long does it take to get used to that feeling while you're operating the aircraft because I sat in the aircraft yeah. feeling it yeah thinking the entire time there's no way I could fly an aircraft while feeling this uh, it's totally different in the cockpit because you know what will happen 
you know exactly what will happen. Okay, the first time you feel the, the pressure on your body uh, at 1.8 G and you feel the, the zero gravity uh, at uh, your first injection. But really when you are in control, when you are at control of the aircraft, you cannot feel it. You don't feel anything because you are so focused on your task. You cannot uh, think about what's happened and 22 seconds is very short. And so you are so focused on the on the on the flight flight this maneuver, you I don't see you cannot feel, but uh, it's well behind. So you mm -hmm. think well after the the maneuver, you will feel oh, what happened. Yeah, I feel my body, etc. But during the maneuver, no, it's impossible. You are so focused, you, you cannot imagine it's uh, you. You are looking at your instrument and you are focused on your instrument and, and that's it. Everything can happen, uh, anything can happen uh, around you. You are so focused. Is there anything about the flight tech that's been modified specifically no. for this uh, aircraft? There is no major modification in this aircraft. The only modification we introduced in this HV-10 is uh, the accelerometers, the way to display the information in the cockpit. So we get some two screen with a accelerometer and in two different scales, one large scale to fly the pull up and pull out, a 1.8 G, and one very, very uh, accurate scale uh, to fly the, the maneuver by, the, by itself. Uh, part of that, and of course the cabin. The cabin is, is totally modified to, to remove the seats, put some foam everywhere and to uh, to provide electricity and air to uh, for the science. Does it fly any differently than the yeah. A310 that has I don't know, it's a, a very standard 310. When we fly, uh, when we, we ferry this aircraft from uh, Bordeaux to somewhere else, it's, uh, it's a very standard A310, mm -hmm. um, brand new A310. How is the maintenance because of the Call it high pressure um, of the wings and the, the structure. So uh, with Airbus, we, we have carried out a big study on the aircraft and we have uh, divided the aircraft. Or some parts uh, have a life cycle different than uh, a standard operation. Mm -hmm. So that means we have some beta factors on, uh, on the engine. For example, one parabola is one cycle. So that means oh, okay. it's equal to one landing, one takeoff. Okay. Every every parabola, so that means this morning, 31 parabola plus one takeoff, one landing means 32 cycles on the engine. Wow. So that means 32 okay. flights. Okay. So it's a lot. And for other parts, in, uh, we have some beta factor of uh, one parabola, uh, five cycles. So we shorten the, the life cycle of some parts, very dedicated parts with... Uh, uh, it, it was an Airbus study and, uh, and we trust them on, on their job, so it's to, to ensure uh, we have a safe aircraft uh, at any time. So more or less, we have the same maintenance than an airline. If this aircraft fly most, more or less 10 to 15 hours per day. So, but we fly only 35 flights a year and but we have the yeah really we have the more or less the same uh, maintenance schedules and uh, a standard airline who operates this aircraft uh, daily so very interesting yeah over maintenance for sure <laughs> but that's the, the price to pay to to get this aircraft sure. to be sure the aircraft is always uh, in good condition for this uh, repetitive maneuver because we are in the certified envelope 
of the aircraft. Zero is in the middle of, uh, of the flight envelope, a certified flight envelope of, the, of any aircraft. The only thing who changed is the repetitive action to stay 20 seconds in, at zero and the repetitive action of 1.8 G, which is impossible on a, on a standard airline. Up next, we revisit our conversation with Michael Carrolls, a dispatcher for a legacy U.S. airline, to discuss what it's like to be a dispatcher and how the work of a dispatcher differs in the U.S. compared to other countries. Welcome back. We are now joined as long promised. It took us a minute or two to get here, but but we finally did. Michael Carrolls is a dispatcher for a major U.S. legacy carrier. I'm sure that it will take a very, very long time for folks to really dig in and, and figure out which airline after the conversation, but I have faith in them that, that somebody will figure it out. But Michael, thank you so much for joining us. We're really thrilled to have you on the show. I'm really glad to be here and you know I'm really glad we're, fi- we're finally able to get this put together you know with you bringing three people together in three schedules is always a always the fun part of podcasting. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad we made it work and and I'm glad you're here. Over the past couple of weeks we've asked people both listening to the podcast and and in our weekly newsletter we we sent out a call for questions and we got a few good questions but we also got some questions from folks who asked questions that Jason and I would never ask of a dispatcher because those aren't questions for a dispatcher and then that got me thinking well these folks could stand to get a bit from an aircraft dispatcher on what an aircraft dispatcher does so let's start there with what is your job <laughs> what's my job <laughs> So an aircraft dispatcher is a certificated airman under the FAA. The basic role of the dispatcher is to plan all of the flights for their air carrier that they get assigned to during the day uh, and during their shift. And they plan the flight. They tell the crew what the origin is, what the destination is. So this is flight one, two, three from Chicago to Denver. And from Chicago to Denver, they then look at the weather. Is what's the weather going to be like in Denver? Is an alternate going to be required for that? If yes, then what alternate is it going to be and how much fuel is it going to take to get there? The dispatcher works on the route of flight. You know, you got your origin, you got your destination, but how are you going to get there? That's the dispatcher picks the route of flight with the mindset of economics, the mindset of turbulence avoidance and other weather avoidance. The goal of any company is to move our flights in the most economical way, but there are situations like turbulence and thunderstorms or any other weather phenomena that's in our way that we have to then, you know, fly around and avoid that. Dispatchers have to have a versed knowledge in the aircraft systems. The aircraft can be, quote, dispatched with things broken on it under a maintenance carryover under the minimum equipment list. So we have to make sure our the airplane that we're using is legal for that route of flight we're going to be putting on for that flight. And then it doesn't end there. So finally, when you you get done all of that, you read your notams, you read your weather, you got a route of flight, you have 
the correct payload for passengers and cargo on board and you have a good fuel number, you hit the release button, but that doesn't end there for a dispatcher. For the dispatcher, we sit there and we watch the flight from origin to destination, and then we're required to update the flight crew of any changes to the plan that they signed for at the gate with their release. Changes in weather, changes in turbulence, any pilot reports that we get along the way that might be effective to their flight, we give them a heads up about it. On Sundays, it's usually, hey, what's the score of the football game? in fall. (laughs) But, you know, it's constant communication with the flight crew. If something happens on that flight, i.e. if you have a customer medical, a customer issue, or a mechanical issue, the pilots are going to reach out to the dispatcher first on the ground, and then we are going to help troubleshoot any of the issues along the way. So, that's the basic gist of the aircraft dispatcher as it is. Matt, that is quite a lot of responsibility. And so for a a larger airline like you work at, which again, we won't mention specifically, but people will figure out probably, how many flights on a shift would you be assigned? And if it's 1, 2, 10, 15, how many dispatchers are there and how do you divvy up the workload? Is it like you'll take the Northeast, you'll take the Southwest, and I'll take Canada or something like that? <laughs> so my airline, we have, I think we're about 2,800 to 3,600 flights a day, somewhere in there based on the day and the season. A dispatcher is limited by the regulations to a 10-hour shift at our shop. We work either nine hours or 10 hours on a dispatch desk. Domestically, on the domestic side of the world, they'll be working anywhere between 35 to, I'd go about 45 flights in the 10-hour shift. And over on the international side, the high side is going to be in about the 20 to 25, and that's going to be mainly the Latin America Caribbean flights. Your transoceanic dispatchers are going to be in the anywhere between five and, you know, maybe, maybe up to 10 flights on a shift. Their workload is a lot less mainly because it's farther, it's a longer route, but then you have, uh, you know, ETOPS and all of that stuff that you have to put in there. The workload for international flight plan is more than a domestic flight plan. So you also asked, okay, how do we divvy it up? At my airline, it's by region. You work a region of flights. So you could be working, you know, you could be working transcons. You're working JFK, San Francisco, JFK, LA, throw some San Diego, some Vegas in there, but you got Kennedy to you know, Vegas, San Diego, LA, and that would be your world. Your world is the entire country. And is that for like a particular day or do you repeat the same kind of like territory that you get familiar with? So line holders or desk holders will work the same flights every single day that they're working. You know, that's kind of their desk. You know, this is what they become very specialized in, in those flights. Now, we also have relief dispatchers, which work the desk of the dispatchers when they're on vacation, because unlike most jobs, 
someone has to do your job for you when you're on vacation. You can't, you know, just come back from your vacation and have a pile of flights to work up. That that doesn't work out very well for many people. Sorry, we can't fly to Seattle this week because Jim's on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've had some management try to suggest that before, but we quickly told them, yeah, that doesn't work that way. <laughs> You know, so there's that region, but you, your region can be small. You could be working out of Atlanta Tobacco Road airports. The maybe Dulles is the furthest north you go, but you have Greensboro, Richmond, Charlotte, and maybe Savannah. And now your world is Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. It's much more compressed. Internationally, we break things out by ocean. We have a North Atlantic quad. We have a Pacific quad. A quad being four or five dispatchers all in a row that are working the same region. So you kind of have some resource management back and forth uh, with each other and some support. And, you know, have a, like you said, Latin America, we'll have an Atlantic, we'll have a Pacific, and then, you know, we'll have Africa. And Africa is kind of a pseudo North America desk. It's a unique desk. Can you tell us what you typically work on without giving away the actual secret? <laughs> so I have moved on from the actual guy sending flight plans. And now I work more in the ops management side of the office in the dispatch profession. And what I work on if, when I work the floor is I work a fleet of airplanes and I make the customer delay, cancel, swap airplanes, do a stuff, a bunch of stuff in the background to make sure we stay on time roll. Now, that's an important job too. And I just last week actually had, I was flying JFK to Seattle and we had on Delta's 321 Neos, they had some bad luck with a few of their aircraft and they had to swap a few out. And I was very thankful that instead of just canceling my flight and say, sorry, you're going through, I don't know, Denver now, they were able to swap it out to a 739 instead of the 321. So that was probably took a fair bit of reconfiguring some flight schedules. And I was very happy someone was able to do that. Could have been you, could have been someone else. I don't know. Yeah, it, it could have been. It's one of those things, especially when you talk about the operation on the fleet side of things. The fleet operations manager is supposed to really, their whole goal is to make sure there's a pilot crew, a flight attendant crew, and an airplane at the gate with the marketing schedule as it got published. If one of those three components is not there on time, we either have to swap, move airplanes and equipment around to make sure we have an airplane that's there on time. We need to reroute crews to make sure it's there for an on-time departure. Or we have to delay, which is pretty much usually our first and, and best option for you know recovering any situation like that. And if delay doesn't work and you still aren't going to get a piece to the puzzle that you need, well, then cancellation is the pretty much our last resort of what we're going to do. How computerized are things these days as far as using either you know planning software or, or things like that to make either make the decisions or, or help make the decisions? How much of that is built in and computerized versus how much of it is people sitting down and figuring out, okay, what, what are we going to do here? It's a good mix between the both. Our flight planning system is completely computerized. A dispatcher sits down 
pulls up the flight. They sees the sees the amount of payload that's going to be on there. They hit the compute button. The dispatcher isn't sitting there with a calculator adding up the fuel to get the total fuel bill. Everything is done and automated there. So that's all computerized there. They still need to do the manual, hey, let's look up to see what these different MELs are. I have to manually go and take a look at the weather. I have to, I'm still using a computer program to read the weather and the notums, but it's it's a manual reading of the weather and the notums to do it. There's no machine learning that we have yet that will read weather and notums for us and do any sort of critical thinking for a dispatcher. We don't have a a machine learning system based on it on the dispatch side. And that's pretty much the same on the operations management side. We have a lot of tools that gives us a lot of good information and a lot of good analytics about customers and about connections and about high value customers and and value scores for different flights that we can help make a decision. But in the end, it's it's the human sitting at the computer that's taking all the information in to go ahead and actually make a decision. Now, we're working towards a more machine learning, machine analytics type of operation, but we're, we're not there yet. You mentioned weather, and we always talk about you know weather being a very both predicted and still yet unpredictable. And one of the questions we got from a podcast listener was about kind of the dealing with weather that hasn't happened yet. So the, their question was, how do you dispatch forecasted weather where there's thunderstorms that could pop up and say you're dispatching a transcon flight from San Francisco to New York and halfway through the flight, you're expected to see thunderstorms, but they haven't materialized yet. So you don't know exactly which way you're going to need to go. How do you deal with that? So there's a couple of ways we can do this. So with your specific example, line of thunderstorms that are going to pop up, we have a bunch of tools that we can use to A, know that the thunderstorms will pop up and given their timing that they are going to pop up. We have our own in-house meteorology department that writes our own forecasts and does a lot of our weather charts for us. And then they issue forecast areas of in this case, thunderstorms of convection, and they give a time that it is going to be, you know, hey, we expect it to pop up at at this time. There's also some tools that the dispatcher use from MIT's Lincoln Labs. That's some really, really good, high quality forecasting on there that is used pretty much throughout the industry, both at the airlines and at at the FAA level to see what kind of forecasted impact there is going to be from that weather. And that you know, then you just use other forecasts, uh, written forecasts and that along the way for you get a you get a good general understanding of where the weather's gonna be popping up. It's definitely a little bit more sophisticated than what they show on the weather channel. <laughs> but now you see the the future high res radar guesses from the weather channel uh, of how's this weather going to move through or here's how it's going to build. And you even see on your local news, a lot of it's the same. We see where the weather is going to be and then we just have to manipulate our route to either avoid that area or, you know, throw on some extra fuel to make sure that we can avoid that, that area. 
But I would say that most of the time, if we know a line of thunderstorms is going to pop up, and by the time we're going to be there, it's going to be, it's going to be there. We will route around it just like it was actually there. So thunderstorms is one of the most harder things for us to route around, especially summertime convection and all of that. There's no there's no clear, true science of timing and all of all of that or you know, how much coverage is the line going to be? Is it going to be a broken line or is it going to be a solid wall of thunder Thunder, in that's going to be there? Are we going to be able to get through it or not? There's, It's not quite that good of a science yet. Just, you know, just going back from what's been going on this last week, you know, here in, you know, October of 2022, Hurricane Ian came through the United States over the last week. For me, in, in the operations in the airline world, hurricanes and blizzards are so much more preferred weather to forecast and avoid because they're much more predictable and they're slow moving. And you can you have time to get a good plan in place, action that plan, and then you also know when you're going to be able to recover and start operating again once the storm moves through. That's funny that you would actually, and I totally understand it, that you'd prefer a more widespread kind of devastating storm, but a little like a summer pop-up storm in New York. You don't know if it's going to ruin United's Day at Newark or if it's going to ruin American's Day at JFK since it's that localized. So it is pretty funny that a wider, more widespread storm is actually just easier to deal with than a little pop-up thunderstorm in New York. That's fascinating. No, absolutely. I, I would take a hurricane over a New York swap event any day. We don't want hurricanes ever, and you know we want to run our run our flights. But like from the operational side of things, I'll take the slow moving storms better. You know, you talk about pop up storms. You know, you just one cell pops up over Laguardia. You know, that, and that's it. That's it. For that's <laughs> it for that airport. But you know, Kennedy's running fine, and Newark's running fine. Or you know, you get one thunderstorm that pops up just north of Philly, and it cuts off one of the arrivals to the New York metros. And you know, now you have say LaGuardia and Newark are running fine, but Kennedy's blocked and is holding. And now you're scattering airplanes and diverting because there's no other place to go. But everyone else going to the other airports are just flying right by you. And see you later. <laughs> So is weather the hardest part of your job? I would say weather is the most impactful part of the airline operation, and it definitely is the largest influence of workload at an airline. And very few airlines actually have a dedicated weather staff employed, I think, too. You, you happen to work at one that does, but if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's actually exceptionally rare. I think... Most of the majors have access to their own meteorologist or they have a contract with people that are meteorologists that work in their operations center. But for us, they're actually airline employees. They have the same skin in the game in it as we do. They're not forecasting for, you know, a bunch of other people or throwing out just broad forecasts. They're they're definitely airline specific forecasts and you know, they are a great team that we work with. Yeah. And speaking of rare, dispatchers overall, we talked a little about this before we hit the record button. The US airlines are actually 
in a class of their own when it comes to dispatching, since we talked a little about that. So most airlines out in Europe, Asia, they don't actually have dispatchers. Can you tell us a little bit about why that might be or, or how they operate SANS dispatching? I can talk a little bit about it. So why do the U.S. have dispatchers? And that just because it's baked into the the federal aviation regulations. It's in there as in part 121 that, you know, there has to be a dispatcher sitting on the ground while the flights are going out and flying and doing all the pre-flight planning. If you think about it from our aspect in the United States, you have someone that has the same knowledge as an airline captain. The dispatcher written exam is pretty much exactly the same as the ATP written exam, minus, I think, a few questions and otherwise, they're basically identical. You have a certified airman who understands the exact same knowledge as as the pilot does, but we stay on the ground and we do all the the quote paperwork and the routing uh, routing stuff for that flight crew. I, I think if you gave a pilot and made them in the United States have to flight plan their flight like a dispatcher does for them your crew utilization would be incredibly low because they'd be spending two or three hours in between flights planning the next flight. We don't have that time. You know, airplane comes in, say the crew is, you know, turning with the airplane to head back out. That's a 30 to 90 minute ground time. They don't have that time to sit and prepare to this level that we do for them. We prepare the documents and all of the information for them, so they just have to read the importance part. So that's how we do it in the United States. Canada has a similar model, and I believe Australia has a similar model, but that's it. The rest of the world doesn't operate on a model that's similar. There's a new flight planning system out there that's mainly used in Europe, that uses the machine analytics to read the weather notums and it goes through and looks looks at, you know, looks being in air quotes, looks at the, the weather and the convection and the thunderstorms in areas that are closed and it, it auto flight plans for those carriers based on the payload. And, you know, it's a computer that's doing it and they might have one person there for their whole operation that just manages the exceptions if something, you know, if the computer can't handle it. I don't want to say one way is better than the other way because there's no, yes, this is the best way or no, this is the best way. Everyone seems to be doing it and everyone gets it done in the way. So, you know, it always goes through and we always get our customers to where they want to go in a safe manner. It's just a different way of doing things. I mean, do you think that has anything to do with the fact that that U.S. legacy carriers and a few other U.S. carriers are just operating a much greater volume of flights per day? I think it's definitely a much greater volume of flights per day. And I also think it's just the fact that when the aviation regulations were written, the aircraft dispatcher was almost a, had a combined role as also being more like the air traffic controller because the number of airplanes in the sky were a lot lower and you were actually taking position reports over the radio and 
they were literally moving little pegs of airplanes across a big map on the table, and that's how they flight followed. And you'd be able to see other airlines and all of that. The whole dispatching thing came around, same thing with the air traffic control thing, when two airliners came together over the Grand Canyon. And that that's where this whole thing started. Basically, everything that has ever come out of the airline industry, especially in the United States, came about because something terrible happened and then they figured out, okay, let's figure out a way to make it make it safer. And I knew about the kind of the genesis of the modern air traffic control system, but I didn't realize that that it had such a, a dispatcher focused portion as well. I have two questions for you since I know we're running out of time. What's your favorite part about being a dispatcher and what's your least favorite part? Is there anything you look forward to at the beginning of the day and anything you really, really don't want to do but still have to do? <laughs> I like the complexity of the job and how it changes day to day. You know, you'll go in and it changes season to season. I love working the operation in the operation floor in October, late September, October. This is great. This is great weather. It's they're easy days at work because, you know, there's the convection isn't there. Things are cooler, big high pressure across most of the country, VFR weather everywhere. It's great. But then I also enjoy the New York swap events of trying to get airplanes into or out of New York and then dealing with the diversions and trying to take the operation of the airline and trying to put it back together and piece some sort of semblance of an operation out of that and put it back together. So I, I like that challenge of it. There isn't anything that are like, oh, this is this is horrible. Why I don't like this about the job, but I have to do it anyway. Sometimes it's alarm clocks. Sometimes it's midnight shifts. You know, dispatchers are on call or in the office twenty four seven three sixty five. We always have dispatchers there. We always have an airplane in the air. It doesn't matter if it's Thanksgiving, if it's Christmas, if it's New Year's. It doesn't matter someone's there at work because we have airplanes flying. So I guess that would be the negative and the takeaway. The uh, bad part is, you know, having to hurry up and, you know, have Thanksgiving dinner on Saturday because you worked Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and you didn't have a Thanksgiving like everyone else did. You, you just shifted the holiday a little bit. And then, you know, the occasional midnight shift, I, you know, when you're junior, you're straight midnights, and that's four or five days of uh, midnights in a row, and yeah, it's not exactly fun. We've had Andrew Poor on the show before, and before he became a dispatcher, the last time we talked to him, he had just completed his his course. And one of the things that that he's talked about, especially working for a cargo airline, is working so many nights and continuing to do so. But he he's just getting started in his career. I will ask one final question that comes from our our listener, James, and he is excited and enthusiastic to become a dispatcher and was wondering if you had any advice on how to prepare and move towards becoming an, an airline dispatcher. So, some of the basic requirements for being a dispatcher is one is you have to be over the age of 23 to get your dispatch certificate and start working as a as a dispatcher. That doesn't mean you can't go to school and become a dispatcher before you're 23. I definitely fit in that camp. I had I had all of my written and my practical tests done 
when I was 21. And I just had to wait till I turned 23 to get my certificate. Being a dispatcher and finding a dispatch job, there are a list of schools, and I can get you the list from the FAA in for your guys' show notes. Perfect. Of where you can go through and get your dispatch training at. It's like any other airman certificate from the FAA. There's a minimum number of hours. There's a minimum number of classroom hours and subject hours that you have to go through. Unlike the pilot ratings, you don't have to go out and demonstrate how that you can practically do things in the air or in real life. But when you do have your, quote, check ride with the FAA, you will do a manual flight release with a with a good old E6B or whiz wheel and a plotting chart. And that'll be the last time you actually have to use a manual computer to do a flight plan. But we go through and do it that way. Job characteristics to be a dispatcher, I would definitely say you have to be someone that handles stress and pressure relatively easily and be able to multitask and keep track of things, especially in I'll give a scenario. You have you have a line of weather or some sort of event that is impacting one of your hub airports. And now you have five airplanes in that arrival bank coming into that hub. And now all five of them are in holding. All five of those crews are sending you ACARS messages at once. And you now you are trying to develop a plan and you're trying to communicate to each of these flights pertinent information for them, which they need to know. And now you're developing a backup plan of, hey, if we can't get into Atlanta, well, let's send this one to Birmingham. This one can go to Knoxville. This one can go up to Chattanooga. This one can maybe go to Huntsville because we can't send all the diversions to one airport. One, our friends in airport customer service at the airport don't like it when 25 extra airplanes show up at at their airport and they have to work them all. <laughs> it's really poor customer service because someone's going to be on the airplane for a really long time. So in a diversion event, we try to spread out the spread out the pain and put maybe three or four in, in a city at a time. So it's better on the customers on the airplane. It's better for our uh, employees at the airport that we can get those airplanes turned rather quickly. So it's all of that multitasking that you have there that you have to kind of keep everything in order in your head so you can make sure it's logical and keep things in order there. And then finally, you have to be willing to work shifts. You have to be willing to work holidays. You have to work weekends, midnights, and all of that. The best part of the job is, you know, we don't work a ton. We're not working 40 hours a week. We're working maybe 30-ish. It's four on, four off is the rotation for the 10-hour shift at my airline. So that's four days on, four days off. You take four days of vacation and now you have four to 12 days off in a row. So it's, it's really good for that. And finally, the best perk of the job is a dispatcher gets a jump seat privileges with their airline and other airlines because the regulations say that we have to sit and watch our flight crews fly an airplane for five hours on a route that we would normally dispatch. So 
Each year we get a company paid vacation somewhere to go watch pilots fly the airplane, which means we have to sit in the jump seat, which means we have access to the jump seat year round. Hey, that's not a bad perk. I think that's our best perk. That would be my top perk if if I was a dispatcher, for sure. We have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I mean, I'm sure we keep going forever and ever and ever, and, and we'll have to have you back definitely to chat more. But I'm going to let you go here so that we don't keep you forever and, and that eventually you can go back to dispatching more planes. Michael Carrolls is an aircraft dispatcher for a major US legacy carrier. Email us at podcast.fr24.com if, if it was very difficult to figure out which one, and we'll go from there. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Really great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, Brahman, if, if you don't mind me throwing in a cheap plug, if you like conversation- Absolutely. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> by all means. Yes. Yes. If you, if you like conversation like this about, hopefully, usually uh, about twice a month, me and two other dispatchers get together and do a podcast called Flying in Life. Sometimes I talk about air shows. Sometimes I go to, or I usually go to Oshkosh every year and cover Oshkosh talk a, a little bit about personal flying, but most of it is 121 dispatch operations on what we do and how it is we do our thing. And we get, you know, kind of geeky sometimes and get down into the weeds of things. So, And if, if you want to go from, from our more general conversation into that conversation, we will absolutely put a link in the show notes to their podcast, Flying and Life. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, no problem. Thanks, guys. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to AvTalk this year as much as we have enjoyed producing it. As always, feel free to email us at podcast at fr24.com with any suggestions, comments, or criticisms that you may have. And if you are enjoying listening to the podcast and you've made it this far, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review, preferably both, which helps other people find the show so that we can continue making more great episodes. I am Ian Pechnik, wishing everyone a very happy new year and happy tracking.